Here are the parallels in Matthew's account so far. Matthew 24 and 25, this is kind of the outline of those two chapters. Jesus describes the first three and a half years as the beginning of birth pangs, and then the last three and a half years he calls great tribulation. So I see chapter 24, 4 through 14 as a description of the first three and a half years. And if that's the case, then what we have are the seal judgments that begin in this first three and a half years, Antichrist, and they will probably progress throughout that seven-year period. There will be these false messianic claims. There will be one Antichrist that will dominate all the others. That's verses 4 and 5 in Matthew's account. Then I see war, and maybe I ought to extend the arrow even further, verses 6 and 7. And there's famine that follows right after war. That's verse 7 in Matthew's account. These are just the parallels. And then we have martyrs. That's verse 9, and that'll put us at the next seal judgment. And then there's going to be cataclysms. That's in verse 29, and I just abbreviated there. Verse 29 of Matthew's account, cataclysms. And those cataclysms in Matthew's account, I think, parallel what we're going to look at here at the end of chapter 6. So that's part of the reason I see this extending throughout the whole period of time. Does that make sense? Rather than ending somewhere in here and then the beginning of the trumpet judgments. Because of the parallel in Matthew, and then we're going to see some other things when we look at the trumpet judgments. Do you have a question, Mark? You've got Antichrist plural up there. Are you saying that each of these four are also considered Antichrists, even though there is the one Antichrist that is the covenant with Yes, there will be more than uh, that's the way Jesus puts it in Matthew's account. Christ's and false Christ's. But they're not four seals, no. Okay. No, those those are different. All right. Uh, war is parallel with the second horseman. Famine with the third horseman. Martyrs with the... Uh, now, Jesus doesn't specifically mention death, but he talks about pestilence, which also is in, in uh, the Revelation passage. Famines and pestilence, and I can't remember what else he describes in the Matthew. So that's part of the reason. Maybe I should have put this later, this slide here, but that's okay. Verse 9, that's Matthew's account. Now, back in the book of Revelation, we also have verse 9. And let's read it. Is that your time again, Mark? When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony. Okay, stop there for a minute. Notice the horsemen have ceased. In other words, we've already looked at the four horsemen, but we still have three more seals. Two more in chapter 6, and then there'll be a seventh one later on. But the scene kind of shifts here. Where does the scene go from verses 1 through 8? What's the difference in verse 9? Earth to heaven. Very good. This is probably a heavenly altar. Based on the context and based on other references in the book of Revelation to scenes relating to a heavenly temple. And what does he see in verse 9? The souls. Um, Probably not all of the 25%, but some of them, yes. Souls of those that have died. Now these are saints, those who had been slain because of the word of God. These are believers. And because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are believers. The 1.75 is based on present-day population. We don't know what the population will be during the seven-year period. I just put that up there to give you a feel for the magnitude that we have here. So whatever number of believers that are martyred, they are underneath the altar. Keep reading. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? They are yearning. They have the same yearning that we have. We want things to be made right, but they have a heavenly perspective. And they want things to be made right from from God's perspective. And they desire that God complete this judging, this making things right. How long will you refrain? How long are you going to let this go on? How long is this evil going to continue? And they're even wanting their own situation to be made right. Our blood, you know, avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. In other words, this is right and just. 
Read verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a while, a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. This is just part of the process. There's going to be other believers. There's going to be other martyrs. This is early in terms of the seven-year period. So that's why I put it somewhere in this time frame. Perhaps in the middle of the tribulation, there's already martyrs, but it's not the complete group of martyrs. So the encouragement is God is in the process. Just be patient. God's working this out, and God's going to bring it to completion. And notice the last little phrase there, should be completed. There's a plan here. It's not random. It's not just things working itself out on earth in an unspecified way. God is working And martyrdom is part of the plan. In fact, martyrs will receive a special crown, a special reward. So the fifth seal is a heavenly scene, different from the first four. No horsemen, saints under the altar, and they appear to be, the reason they're there is they're dead. They're given a white robe. The bema has taken place. They're given a white robe, and these are martyrs. And I use imagery just to give a picture of people that die as a result of... Now, yeah. Uh, I said the thing, martyrs, you know, martyrs are not the only believers because some will have yeah. pestilence and otherwise. That's right. That's right. There'll be lots of death, including believers. The fifth seal, in, in some ways you might even view it as positive, dealing with believers, but it's negative in that there's going to be martyrdom. They're going to die and probably a cruel death. So the fifth seal judgment deals with martyrs. And then the sixth seal we have in verse 12 through 17. Jim, do you want to get those? And let's look at it verse by verse. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Okay, and that verse is used and spiritualized by those that are speaking of the blood moons. You've heard some of that. But notice they spiritualize it because the moon is just a pinkish color or even a taint, just a little tainted color of reddish. Like the one that just came by. Is that right? Okay. So he, again, referring to the lamb, broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. Now we have geophysical phenomenon, astrophysical phenomenon, a great earthquake. So we have all these cataclysms. There's going to be death as a result of that as well. There's going to be destruction, all kinds of issues relating to the earth. The sun, uh, so just a few images of earthquakes, probably tidal waves as a result, great devastation. The sun is referenced in verse 12, black as sackcloth, so phenomenon in the skies. The moon became like blood, which is important. There's a simile there, but I think it's going to be much redder than what we're observing before this period of time comes. The next passage, verse 13. The stars of the skies fell to the earth, a fig tree cast unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Keep reading. The sky was split apart, a scroll, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. More geophysical, astrophysical So the sky is affected, rolled up like a scroll, mountains exploding. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and strong and every slave and free man hid among the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to... You would expect that men would be awakened to spiritual things, but this speaks to depravity, that in spite of, and it even indicates that they know what's going on. They know that the Lamb is judging, and they know that he sits on a throne, and he's pouring out wrath, and they recognize that it's great wrath. The great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? They don't repent. They raise their fists. Now, keep 
these cataclysms in mind because we're going to look at the end of uh, chapter 16 when we look at the bold judgments. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time, but I wanted to give you a feel for at least these in some detail. The others we'll look at more quickly. Jim, so, for the sake of time. Uh, just comes to mind since uh, what throne is he? Christ. It's probably a judgmental heavenly throne. But it's not what? It's not the millennial kingdom throne. Not the Davidic David- throne. Probably not the Davidic throne, yeah, which is earthly. Okay. And because of the cataclysm, this is one of the reasons I see more of this parallel situation rather than sequential. Otherwise, if you have these sequential seals, trumpet bowls, then you have to have all these cataclysms early on in this seven-year period of time. And it almost doesn't make sense because we have cataclysms at the end in Matthew's account, and we also have them in chapter 16. And this sequential viewpoint is going to give you two sets. You have to have two sets of astrophysical, geophysical phenomena. Well, something that occurs to me, too, that I don't think Andy mentioned this in the book, uh, these judgments are being exercised by the Lamb. Yes. Not by the King. Well, he is the King, but he, yeah. He hasn't taken his position. His kingly rulership on earth yet. Right. right. Yeah, this is executed from heaven, it appears. I mean, it's interesting that they don't call him. They call him the, the Lamb. lamb. Mm-hmm. To tie him back, this is the same Jesus that was sacrificed on the cross. The Lamb of God. The same Lamb of God that John the Baptist identified. I think that's the reason that John uses that title and description. Mark. The purpose of he sacrificed on the cross, unsaved, rejected him. What's the, what's the, why, why make that? Other than just us knowing, us being able to be illuminated with this him, what does that have to do with people who are well, they need to recognize during the seven-year period of time, the true Messiah is the same Jesus that lived in the first century and died, and particularly the Jewish mindset that rejected that first century Jesus. That's the same Jesus that is executing judgment, and that same Jesus that is going to come and rule on the throne. It's that messianic It's not the connection to the people who are experiencing it. It's the, people, the connection to the people who have read the letters and the testament. Well, it's, what you're saying. it's both, yeah. I think this book will be the most read book during this period of time by particularly Jewish people during that seven-year period. Jim? Well, it's also the one who was judged for all the people of the world. Yes. And it's the ones who didn't accept uh, his judgment to pay the price for them. Right. So now he's the judge. Yes, he is the judge. Doesn't it say that in Matthew? Yeah, he came to judge. Yeah, right. And he's appointed the judge, and we see that worked out here. We looked at that passage when we were last last time. So those are those are the seal judgments, and like I say, I see them as a panorama or a preview of the whole seven year period on Earth, except for the one, the fifth one, that's the picture of a heavenly scene. Well, I don't know why, but boy, that really lives. That what? Going through this with you today made it live. Good, good. Now there's a second set. Now these seem to be more intense and more what you might describe as rapid fire. In other words, more uh, in a shorter period of time, I guess, is a better way of describing it. Instead of horsemen, we have a group of four again. We have a lot of structural similarities here. We have the first four trumpet judgments all deal with a third of the earth or a third of something. The first four seal judgments are what? Horsemen, remember? And we have a burning of the third of the earth. And I think the emphasis here, again, is global. Global description. Seal judgments were global. These are global as well. Some of these are very similar to what Moses brought upon the Egyptians in the, in the uh, time of Moses, during the preceding the Exodus. And what God did on a local scale in Egypt, one nation, there's some similarities between some of these with what God's going to do on a global scale. So what God has demonstrated his ability to do on a local 
gives us assurance that certainly the same omnipotent God can do this on a global scale, and it's going to happen during the seven-year period. So skip to, and we won't go through all of them. Let's go through a couple of them. Skip down. They're introduced. Let's not read the first five verses there, but basically the seventh seal, notice verse one, when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then we have a description here of seven angels that are given trumpets. So it appears that the seven or the seventh seal we have these seven trumpets that come out of it. Does that make sense? And that's one of the support for those that see the sequential, because they would see the seal judgments, and then we have a seventh one and seven trumpets. They would base it on on that part here. But I would harmonize it in a different way in terms of, uh, rather than time frame, more as a structural item not related to time. Let's skip to verse 6. I think it's your turn, Sheila. Six and seven. So the seven angels who have the seven thrones. The first angels in hail and fire follow. Now we have a different structure, different imagery. The seven angels are described in those first few verses there, first five verses there. And now these angels are blowing trumpets. The imagery here is angelic creatures rather than the lamb. So the lamb is involved in the seals. These angelic Beings are involved in the trumpets. But the commonality is these are God. God is executing judgment here. In one, he's using his son, the lamb. In these, he's using angelic creatures. But they're heavenly. In other words, these are divine judgments. And the first one, a third, there's hail and fire mixed with blood, and a third of the earth was burnt up. So there's fires all over the earth. A third of the earth. Massive scale. Let's read the second one, 8-9, Mark. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. A third of the ships were Okay, so on the oceans, massive destruction of not only creatures, oceanic waters, and ships that are out to sea third of them destroyed. Massive. Unimaginable. Large scale here. John uses the simile of a great mountain or a big object like a mountain, so a huge the great mountain burning, thrown into the sea, probably volcanic of some sort. Then we have a star falling from heaven in verse 10, and that, that strikes the earth and a third of the fresh waters or continental areas. Maybe the land mass of Asia and Europe combined in that whole area. Uh, we have no idea where, but at least a third fresh waters destroyed. Massive destruction. We looked at, I gave you a little bit of a description of that in comparison to what we're going to see in chapter 9. The imagery is similar, but I think John gives us some clues in that I take as a literal occurrence of some destruction of some astrophysical body that strikes the Earth, comet or asteroid of some sort strikes the Earth, possibly the Pacific Ocean destroying a third of everything in the Pacific Ocean, something like that, third of the sea creatures. Commonality of one-third. Secondly, we have destruction of a third of the fresh waters. Something happens on land masses. Verse 10 is the star falling from heaven. A darkening, the fourth one, darkening of the sun, and a third of the moon, again, a third of the stars were spitten, such that a third of them might be darkened, so darkness. And then now we have a, a set of three trumpet judgments that you could describe also as woe judgments. And these are contained in chapter, the fifth one is 9 through 12. And let's just read the introduction to that. Chapter 9. Is it your turn, Jim? Why don't you read 1 and 2, chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded a star from heaven. The key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened up the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air, the sun and the air were darkened by smoke of the pit. Keep reading. Read verse 3 as well. 
Uh, let's see. He opened a smoke nut out of the pit like a great sun in the air, and the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, the scorpions of the earth. Now, that describes it. It's, the description is going to be more detailed as you read further in there. But we have this star from heaven. The phraseology is very similar to verse 10, except there's some clues in the text that indicate that this is not a physical star. He's described in personal terms. It was given to him, the one that's falling from the sky. So that little clue, and then verse 2, he opened. It's not neuter, it's masculine. He opened the bottomless pit. And there's a personage involved here, and there's more details as you read more into it. There seems to be a demonic spirit or a personage of some sort that releases what are probably described as locusts, something like locusts, something like scorpions of the earth. In other words, destructive beings of some sort. These are probably demonic spirits. I see this as a demonic army that goes out and torments the earth. Demons like never before. More demons than what are described in the first century in the Gospels. And they'll be tormenting people. There's some specific numbers for five months. The torment, verse five, five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. They may even have physical effects upon people on the earth. Verse six, those days men will seek death will not find it, they will long to die, and death flees from them. It's going to be horrendous. Demonic spirits. You might even view them as an army of demonic spirits. And it concludes, verse 12, the first woe is past. There's where we get the idea that these are so horrendous that they're described as woes. And then he says, behold, two woes are still coming after these, and the next two woes are the next two trumpet judgments. So that's number five. The second woe, which would be trumpet judgment number six, a third of mankind destroyed. You probably ought to read that one. Read, Sheila, read 13 through 16. Then the sixth angel sounded a voice from the God, saying to the sixth who had the release of the four bound. So the four angels who had been paired for the hour and month were released. 16. Now the number of the army of the horsemen, I heard the number. Okay, 200 million, a very specific number. And by the way, in my exegesis of the whole book, and I've exegeted this book in some detail, well, I do not see a single number in the whole book that cannot and should not be taken literally. So when it says 200 million, commentators have a hard time with that because the population of the whole world has not reached 200 million up until more recent, more modern time. So commentators have had a hard time, you know, army of that. One army from one region to have 200 million, they would say, well, it's probably just an image of a large number. But I, I take it literally. And I take every number in the book of Revelation literally. I do see in some cases, some numbers in the book of Revelation are used beyond the literalness of them, are used probably in terms of uh, more of a spiritual significance. But that's secondary. What in that passage leads you to the conclusion that that's a human one? It seems to, well, it may be, I take it to be a human army with a a demon-possessed human army. Does that make sense? Because we already have a demonic army in the first woe and this appears because of the detail in there they're coming you know they're bound at the great river euphrates the angel releases them and there's a specific time frame in fact i think this is one of the descriptions of armageddon i think this is a description of armageddon and there 200 million men are involved horsemen and a a third of mankind is killed. So this is a massive battle that takes place. I think there's parallels in that with Armageddon. That adds support to the idea that this trumpet judgment is towards the end, because that's where most commentators would put Armageddon. 
Now, if you take it in terms of sequential, you have to have it earlier, maybe at the middle or maybe just beyond the middle of the second three and a half years, and you have to see this as not Armageddon. But notice a third of mankind, if you add the two, if you add what already, in a separate judgment, these are different judgments, a distinct judgment. If 1.75 million are killed, if, and I'm using the numbers of population today, 7 million, that leaves 5.25 or something. Is that right? And if you take a third of that, you end up with another 1.75. So in the combination of the two, all of, uh, half of all of humanity is destroyed in two judgments alone. And that's not to mention the other judgments as well. So massive death. And this is just with one with an army of 200 million. And the third woe, because there's judgments associated with it, this is, third woe is not described in chapter, the end of chapter 11. So skip there real quick. Notice verse 15. Mark, why don't you just start that one off? Chapter is that again? 11. Verse 15. Yes. And the seventh angel sounded, oh, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, if you read on, it seems to be kind of a preview of the second coming. The seventh trumpet judgment is a picture. It's a, another heavenly scene. It's a picture of the second coming. So if you put the seventh trumpet here, it seems to be out of sequence with the second coming, which is at the end. That's why I prefer to have you know, the trumpet judgments ending with the seventh trumpet judgment paralleling rather than sequentially. You see that? So that's the seventh trumpet, and that completes our trumpet judgments. And it's called a woe because there's going to be judgments associated with it as well. Look at verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the third woe begins in verse 15, it's the seventh trumpet. See that? See verse 14, 11, 14? So it describes the second coming as a third woe. Let's take a look at the bowl judgments, and we've got to take these a little bit briefer for the sake of time, but just by way of introducing them, I take them at the very end of the seven-year period of time, so what we would have is seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and then a series of bowl judgments. And now they're overlapping and reinforcing one another, you might even say. And we don't have a time frame, so you don't, can't tell. But probably all of them are in the second three and a half years. The trumpets may begin in the first three and a half somewhere and then go to the end. The bowls probably all in the second three and a half years. And when we look at the last one there, I want to point out kind of the parallels with the last trumpet judgment and the last seal judgment is the reason why I favor the parallel sequence rather than the sequential. Jim, by the way, uh, Robbie Dean holds to this one. Yes. Yeah, the sequential one. So the first one, just kind of a summary here. We have disease on Antichrist and his followers. There are Also, there are some parallels with this set as well, and some of them with the Exodus plagues. And we could say the same thing concerning if God is able to bring judgments similar to these on a local scale, certainly he can do it on a worldwide global basis. So first one seems to picture disease on the Antichrist and the followers of Antichrist. Second one, destruction, more destruction. This is on top of a third of sea life, more destruction on the seas. Destruction of fresh waters, that's similar to another trumpet judgment and similar to one of the plagues. Remember the turning of the Nile into blood and the fish dying for the exodus. Scorching heat, this is global warming, this is real global warming, where it'll be very, very intense, like nothing has taken place before. The fifth one, the darkening of the kingdom of the beast, so now you have scorching heat, and now you have this, this darkness like nothing else. 
I remember a long time ago, I was just a kid when we went to Carlsbad Caverns, and in that, I can't remember, the big room there, they turn off all the, I don't think they do that anymore, but they they still do it. You sit down and they turn off all the lights. It's an eerie feeling because, I mean, you don't experience that much. Is it, you say intense darkness? <laughs> Where you just can't see anything. Darkening of the beast's kingdom, it's going to be something like that. The sixth one, I think, is Armageddon, and, and I would see this as a parallel with the, the passage that we looked at under the trumpet judgment, so another dimension of it. And then we have these cataclysms, and let's take a look at that last one, and I want you to see the parallels there, beginning in verse 17. I think it's your turn, Jim. No, 16, chapter 16, verse 17. All of the bold judgments are Revelation 16. They're all in one chapter, and that's all that is contained in that one. Okay, how far do you want me to go? Mm, 17 and 18, first of all. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, saying, It is done. Well, that's another little, you know, another little indicator there. Uh, something final here, okay? And there, was, there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, which as there had not been as a man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Keep reading. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. Babylon, the great, was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. The cataclysms are not exact with that sixth seal judgment, but similar enough. And this one would definitely be at the end. But the real parallel with the sixth judgment is what you find in Matthew chapter 24. And here we have a huge earthquake at the end, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and you also have the fall of Babylon. Now he's going to expand that in chapter 17 and 18, the fall of Babylon. So on a little chart here, I've already shown you on the board, but this is essentially the two ways of taking these three sets of judgments. The sequential, you have seal judgments, and again, the time when one starts and the other one begins is indefinite. It doesn't give us a time frame. So you have trumpet judgments. That's how the sequential interpretation would fall. And then you have bowl judgments. And these are out of scale. In fact, the bowl judgments would probably be a shorter period. But in order to show them on a chart like that, to illustrate it, I have it a little bit longer. So that's the sequential. And the parallel sequence would be what I've shown you on the board. Seal judgments is a panorama. Seven trumpets that probably begin somewhere in the first three and a half years. That's indefinite. And then the bowl judgments, that's probably exaggerated, probably a shorter period of time towards the end of the last three and a half years. See the parallel? Parallels. See the difference in taking these? And again, we don't have clear time frame indicators to give us more specificity, and as a result, we have two different ways of interpreting it. And it doesn't make a lot of difference, really, in terms of the overall picture. It's a horrendous period of time, regardless of whether they're sequential or whether they're parallel. It's just that this is the way I prefer to put them together. Another judgment of the future is a judgment of Babylon, and we need to talk about it because Babylon is specifically laid out, is given some attention. So let's take a quick look at judgment of Babylon. The imagery in the book of Revelation is Babylon of Old Testament time that goes all the way back to Babel. In fact, Babylon and Babel are somewhat synonymous We've talked a lot about a mindset, a world system antagonistic to God, man organized in rebellion, direct rebellion against God's word, God's will. Beginning in Babylon, man organizes, and then we see manifestations of that mindset. In Babel, all people were in one place, one language, so it's a world system, a totalitarian world system, 
Babylon is the epitome of it because Babylon not only is in rebellion to God, but Babylon is the nation that destroyed the nation of Israel. So it's very overt in its opposition to what God has. And we've seen smaller or less dramatic manifestations of this idea of Babylonianism. Is another word that you could use to describe this idea or this concept. And the book of Revelation takes that imagery. If you're in chapter 16, turn to the next chapter. And I think in verse 5, 17, 5. Sheila, why don't you read that verse? 17, 5. And on her forehead, the name was written, Mystery, Babylon, the mother of harlot. Okay, mystery. There's a mystery. This is Babylon. We have Revelation that probably is nowhere else except in in this chapter, in the book of Revelation. But the Babylon concept goes all the way to Babel. And it's Babylon the Great. So this is the imagery that is used. Now, if you turn back to chapter 14, we have kind of a preview. Notice verse 8, Mark 14, 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of morality. little summary of Babylon. And notice all of the nations have drunk from the wine of the passion of her immorality. In other words, there's a worldwide effect upon this idea of Babylon. Now, it's a preview, and then it looks at the fall of Babylon. Now, the fall will be described in chapter 17 and 18. But we've already given been given a forewarning, if you will, or a glimpse ahead concerning the fall of Babylon. So the background goes all the way to Babel, and on a map, Babel probably archaeologically can be located right on the same site as Babylon, and it's reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, where man organizes to make a name for himself rather than submitting to the name of the Lord goes back to Babel, and I think what we have here, Babylon the Great, is a picture of apostate religion that has worldwide implications, and it has a political system behind it as well. So I see Babylon the Great, particularly what's described in verse 5, it's as a woman, a mother of harlots the source of harlotry, the source of anti-God worldviews and of the abominations of the earth. And Jesus uses that word as well, abominations. Source of it, Babylon. And through history, we've seen manifestations. We've seen an Old Testament picture in the that first or the head of that image that Daniel saw and that first beast in chapter 7 when these empires are described as beasts. In chapter 2, he's described as the head of that image. And Babylon is the kind of epitome of, of a world system bent against God himself. Now back in Revelation 17, let's read. Jim, why don't you read verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, the harlot, I think, is this apostate religion. Sheila, read three and four. So he carried me in the spirit, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast of flesh, having having seven heads. This beast is this world system. And the woman sits on it, which almost indicates that religion is dominant in this world system. Read verse 4. The woman was arrayed in woolen scarf, adorned with precious of abomination. Okay, so there's an immorality to it. There's religious aspects to it that produces idolatrous worship and ends in uh, immorality as well. So it's pictured as a woman, and she's clothed in luxury, in purple and scarlet. And in fact, even the purple suggests some rulership here. So a dominant woman seated on a beast. And then in verse 5 that we read, this is Mystery Babylon. And it's epitomized throughout the history 
in world empires that dominate, that are idolatrous, that are anti-God, and it's followed not only Babylon, but we saw a Medo-Persian empire. You could see it as Babylonianism, the Greek empire, the Roman empire, and then a future one-world system that uh, will take place during this seven-year period. Great. Do you remember the point that was made about that quote? Uh, I think it was in the NIV. They have mystery inside the Right. Shouldn't be. So and what was the implication of the difference? Do you remember? Uh, let me try to remember. Yeah. Butterfield, the name was written. A mystery. Rather than mystery Babylon, in other words, the concept's not a mystery, uh, if you put it together, because there's a lot of revelation in the Old Testament. So the New American Standard puts a comma. The mystery is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. A full revelation now that Babylon is associated with all that has taken place in terms of abominations, the source and origin. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Saddam Hussein, before he was killed, did a lot of archaeological work in Babylon, present-day Babylon, and made an attempt to recreate and create a museum to kind of memorialize the ancient Babylon because he viewed himself as the modern-day manifestation of a Nebuchadnezzar, and his goal was to destroy the nation of Israel. Now, it didn't happen, but it just gives you the the sense that this is in the back of people's minds in terms of anti-Semitic ideas and even to the extent of dominant ruling of nations like, like a Nebuchadnezzar. But there will be a Babylon, I believe, a literal Babylon and a literal ruler and a literal totalitarian system that will have a woman that is dominated over it. Not a literal woman, but a woman in the imagery of a woman dominating the political system, riding the beast. Did you ever? Um, I was wondering if our, there are any things to... There is a tower on the site, on the site at Babel. It's not clear whether that would be the tower. Other archaeological sites are also suggested. There's one at Ur, and there's a couple of others in different places nearby. And um, why is the one not suggesting otherwise, but I just, what, what leads you to what, that? The, the clues in the text, kind of the accumulation of the description. The woman was clothed in purple. That's a good question because you have to find in the text little indicators First of all, he's carried away in the spirit into a wilderness, and they saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So this is a vision full of blasphemous names. It seems to go beyond the, just the capability of any one individual person as well. This beast is, you know, seven heads. That that has already been clearly defined. And I think later on, let's see, what does he tell us? Because he interprets this for us. He begins to interpret it. He does interpret the beast, beginning in verse 8. The beast that, that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. In other words, it has a past history. It has a present history in terms of this time frame. And it's coming out of the abyss. And the imagery that he ties it to is kind of a composite of those beasts out of Daniel um, chapter 7. So the beast is clearly imagery. And if the the beast, how does a a literal woman sit on this, this empire? Really nowhere in scripture do we have a, a literal female ruler such as what we have described here. So the imagery is that of kind of religion or apostate religion epitomized as a harlot, pictured as a harlot. That, that's a common anyway, isn't it? Yes. Even Israel was the unfaithful wife of God. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a there's a, another woman in chapter 12 that is Israel, that is a nation. So that adds to the idea that that imagery, now that's a different woman, but the usage of the imagery of a woman in a both positive and a negative sense. So there's a history behind this Babylon. We call it Babylonianism, and I define it as the world system that is particularly anti-God. Down below it does say... Did you find it? 
Yeah, the seven heads of seven mountains that sits. Okay. So how does a woman sit on seven mountains, well, mountains liter- literally? Hmm? So mountains would be kings right. and kingdoms, right? right. So mm-hmm. she's over them, which fits with the idea of religion right. being dominant. Dominant, right. Verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. There you go. It's interpreted for us. So Babylonianism... It embodies a politics of persecution of the true believers. So it has political elements that issues laws that eliminate those that believe in the one true God. And those that persist will be persecuted and most of them martyred. It also involves an economy of greed. So it has political aspects It has economic aspects, and there's lots of verses. I'm going to give you some of them. Chapter 13. 13, let's look at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 15. Sheila, 13, starting 16. Now the he is this second beast in this context, but he supports the first beast. 16. 1360. He causes all, both small and great, rich and free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the number. Here is wisdom. Let him who understanding the number of the number of Mary six. Kind of a famous passage, verse 18. But in verse 16, in order to pull this off, what's described in verse 16, he's able to control the economy. He causes all. Small and the great, the rich and the poor. In other words, it's a universal thing. It's a worldwide edict that uh, no one can buy or sell unless they have his mark, the mark of the beast. And the, the mark is defined more specifically. So it's an economy that is controlled, and it's one that supports the leader of that economy. It also has a religion of demons. I'm trying to summarize in a phrase there kind of the essence of what we have here. So it's a political system that persecutes as an economy that is self-serving in terms of the leadership and a religion of demons. And I would call that Babylonianism. Then we have a final judgment of Babylon, and that's chapter 17 and 18. And a lot of detail, by the way, is given to that judgment, particularly chapter 18, where 18 seems to be the destruction of the economic system, specifically Babylon the Great. There's another judgment, another future judgment that attention is given, and there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that I think describe this, that are parallel with the descriptions that we've already looked at in the book of Revelation. There's a history behind this valley that's called Har Megiddon. Har in Hebrew is mountain, so the uh, Greek transliteration comes right from the Hebrew, and Megiddo is to crush or to kill. It can even be used in the sense of to massacre like in a war. That plain... In fact, I've got, well, I've got a location of it, is the Jezreel Valley. And this is a photo from, uh, from Mount Carmel. It's looking, it's a, it's a large expanse on a map. It's this entire area in here. In fact, the city of Nazareth, if you go outside the city, you can see the valley looking to the west. If you remember when Jesus introduced his ministry and read out of the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And he said, today this prophecy was fulfilled, and this kind of angered the leaders of the synagogue there. And they were going to throw him off the hill near Nazareth. He would have been down into this valley. So that's Nazareth right on the eastern side of Megiddo. So this whole plain in here. And the site of Megiddo is right here. That's named after basically the whole valley that kind of is the major was the major city historically of of Canaanites and even long before there now the history there many battles have taken place historically the Egyptians fought battles there 
uh, Thutmose the first in the 15th century BC. Later on, Napoleon had a battle in that whole area as well. So Egyptians, Persians, the Crusaders had battles there. The Turks fought there. Many battles there. That'll be the scene of the last final battle. We call that Armageddon. That's the site, Megiddo. And we're going to visit that site next month when I take a group down there and we'll overlook that whole valley. It's been uh, excavated, so we know a little bit of the history there, or at least the archaeologists have reconstructed some of the history there. Now, before the nation of Israel took control of the land of Israel, that was a swamp, and it was uninhabitable. There was malaria in there. It had just basically gone degenerated such that it became uninhabitable. The Jews drained it, and it's one of the most productive farmlands in the whole world. And a lot of the exports that come from Israel come out of this great valley. It's a very lush, very productive valley now. But that'll also be the scene of great bloodshed that is described in some passages as being very, very horrendous. And this just gives you a perspective of the valley and the size, Mount Tabor in the back there. Nazareth is off the slide over a large expanse, also from Mount Carmel. There'll be a great gathering of armies. I think one of the passages is that one that we looked at in the, the trumpet judgments where armies from the east will gather there. Daniel 11 seems to indicate that there'll be Egyptians, Libyans, and Ethiopians gathered there, specifically named in Daniel 11, 42 through 43. Probably some from Asia. Revelation 16, I think, speaks of them as well, and that other trumpet judgment we looked at, and probably elsewhere as well. 1144, maybe armies from the north, which may include Russian armies. They're assembled. Let's look up Zechariah 12.3. And it shall have Jerusalem a heavy stone for all all who All who may will surely go all nations. Okay, the gathering of all the nations against Jerusalem. Now, I think Jerusalem kind of epitomizes the nation. And since you're there, read verse 9 as well. Zechariah 12, 9. It shall be that I will seek to destroy the nations. Okay, he's going to destroy all the nations. That's the destruction of Armageddon. So we have a gathering, and then we have this battle. We'll have the armies of the beast that gather basically against Jerusalem. And eventually the battle becomes against even Messiah. Jesus will, in fact, enter into battle with them. And it will include those armies of the east, and the Lord will be a part of that. Matthew twenty-four thirty. You want to read that one, Mark? And Jim reads Zechariah thirteen, eight and nine. You have twenty-four thirty, Mark. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great. Okay, and he will enter into battle, and the Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, Jim? It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver fine, as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and will answer I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So there'll be a purging of the nation of Israel during this time frame. And I think that that's the context of that, that verse there, or those verses there. I think Zephaniah 1 is a vivid description of devastation of that war. Do you have it, Sheila? 14, start in 14 and read into it. You could go at least 15. The great day of the Lord it is near and he says there are they are the mighty of wrath. It's the day of devastation and elation. The day of darkness and clouds and thick darkness. The day of trumpet against the fortified cities. If you read on and on and on, you can see more detail given, but I think that is probably a description of Armageddon. Extremely, extremely bloody. And I'm trying to remember, where's that passage that speaks of the blood rising to the bridles for 200 miles? 
That's in the book of Revelation. 14, 19, and 20. 14, 19, and 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, sharp sickle. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the cluster of vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Now the imagery is that of a wine press. After a harvest, you put the grapes in this container or something carved out of rock or something where it will contain the, the grapes. Then you stomp the grapes. So the imagery is that of somebody getting the juices coming out. That's the imagery, but the picture is this is what's going to happen to people. In other words, they're going to be like people stomped where the blood just spurts out. That's the imagery. And then read verse 20. And the winepress was driven outside the city, and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200. Okay, so blood just spurting everywhere, and so much that it even describes 200 miles worth of it. And that's out of uh, Armageddon. So that's the battle, extremely bloody. On a timeline, we have the Bema in heaven, in a heavenly place outside of earth. And then we have the tribulation where nations, the earth and nations are judged, a cleansing, you might say. So those are the tribulation judgments. And next we have judgments of the evil trinity. Turn to Revelation 19 for this one. Jim, 1919 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, his army. Now that's Armageddon as well, but part of that Armageddon judgment, notice what happens to the beast in verse 20 and 21. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet formed the sixth present to see those who had received the mark of the and those who worshipped his image. These were thrown alive into fire, which burns with them. and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth all the birds, and all the birds were killed with them. That's Armageddon as well, but specifically the beast and the false prophet. So the enemies, if you want to include Satan in that, Satan's judgment doesn't take place till the end of the end of history, along with the end of chapter twenty. But we'll we'll look at that later. So we have the judgment of the evil trinity, the objects of the evil trinity, the consequences, lake of fire, eternal damnation. And that takes place at the second coming because Jesus will end the battle of Armageddon. And just to wake you up so that you don't fall too much, too far into sleep. My permanent address is heaven, but I come here a few times a week to make my ex even more miserable. Just a cartoon, not very theologically accurate. That's right. And then we have the judgment of Israel. There's a specific mention of Israel being judged, and the central passage on it is Matthew 25, and it comes into in two parables, Matthew 25, 1 through 30. There's the parable of the ten virgins, and there's a second parable of the talents. I think the parable of the ten virgins is a picture of entrance. Some are prepared and enter the kingdom. Others are not. Others are cast out. The second parable is, I think, analogous to the the Bema in that faithful Jewish people will be rewarded in the millennial kingdom, similar to the Bema where the church is rewarded in the millennial kingdom. We don't have time to look at the details of that, but there's a judgment of Israel. And then in Matthew 25, the last part from verse 31 to 46, we have the judgment of the nations or Gentiles. Judgment of the nations. And you remember the word ethne or ethnos refers, or could be translated nations, it could be translated Gentiles. In terms of Israel, the objects obviously is the nation, Consequences, some with the nation enter the kingdom and serve in the kingdom, and there are some that are excluded from the kingdom. Jewish people, ethnic Jews. Gentiles, their objects are the nations or Gentiles, non-believing peoples or non-Jewish people. And again, entrance into the kingdom, Gentiles, and the lake of fire is those that are cast out. Yep. What were the consequences of 
entrance into the kingdom and exclusion from the kingdom or I leave it kind of indefinite because some Jews will enter the kingdom and be part of it but will not because of unfaithfulness they're genuine but they're unfaithful they won't they'll be excluded from rulership and the unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire so I just have it kind of indefinite there exclusion exclusion from the kingdom there'll be two groups of them and on a timeline this is the pre-millennial view with a lot of specificity not just one final judgment i put it at the second coming of christ and the judgment of the gentiles at the same time and i think matthew is the one that kind of makes it conclusive when that takes place it's after the second coming matthew 25 kingdom thousand year reign of messiah there's believers that are resurrected living israel will be part of the kingdom living gentiles will be part of the kingdom mortals living during the kingdom resurrected believers from old testament and church age and then at the end of the kingdom we have a great white throne This is the second resurrection described in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, let's take a look at that and read it, beginning in verse 11, Mark 20, verse 11. Well, go back to 10, because here's the final member of unholy trinity or satanic trinity. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. The beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The uniting of the devil or Satan with the beast and the false prophet. Now, the time frame is different. This is after the thousand years. Remember, verses 1 through 3, he's confined in the abyss, or he's confined for a thousand years, verse 2, and then verse 3, he's, after the thousand years are completed, he's released for a short time. He gathers the unbelieving nations there. We'll come back to this and discuss this more when we talk about the Millennial Kingdom. And then after the destruction of those that enter into battle, verse 10 that you read, uh, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire. There's the final judgment of Satan. So the entire satanic trinity is ultimately thrown into the lake of fire. And then verse 11. Jim, do you want to start there? Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven, and no place was found for Keep reading. I saw the dead, the great, small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was, which is the book of law, were judged from the things which are written according to their deeds. This is the final judgment. This is the great white throne. And John sees a vision here. I saw, verse 11, I saw the dead, the great These are all unbelievers. This is what he describes earlier in chapter 20 as the second resurrection, a resurrection of all unbelievers. So everyone is resurrected. It's a a matter of whether you're resurrected to life or resurrected to eternal damnation. Sheila, are you there? Can you read 13 through 15? 20. 20, 13 through 15. The sea gave up in death and hate. And they were judged. Then death and were cast. This is the second. Anyone not found. So death and Hades. This is the resolution of evil. God has dealt with every creature, every aspect of evil, even death and Hades is confined in the lake of fire. That's why we say that evil is bounded because this is the end of it or the confinement of it into all eternity. Genesis 3.15 is totally fulfilled at this point, along with all of the associated covenants and promises. This is the end of world history. God has dealt with evil in a complete, comprehensive way, and I take chapters 21 and 22 as the eternal state. Mark? Uh, I noticed, too, when you were shown the four horsemen, the first, the trumpets, the seals, the fourth horseman was called Death, and Hades was with him. Mm -hmm. What is Death? Probably projecting forward to what's talked about here. Hades, in the Old Testament, that's, in the New Testament, that's Gehenna. And that's an image of a place of confinement of the dead. 
unbeliever designation. Yes. And in the Old Testament, it seemed to be a place of confinement for the dead. So it, I think it's an allusion probably to the Old Testament, but it's not real clear. But death is dealt with. And here's the final resolution of evil and all of the consequences of it, which is ultimate. So that's the great white throne. The objects are all unbelievers will stand before a holy God, and the consequences is lake of fire. There's no salvation here. And on our timeline, that's at the end of the millennial kingdom, and the end of the millennial kingdom basically is the end of world history. And we'll come back and talk some more about the lake of fire. Uh, we'll talk about that some more later. But for now, questions? That's the completion of our discussion on the tribulation. And we actually went beyond the tribulation because it involves future judgments that go even past the period of tribulation. Is that pretty clear? Some of it we went over quickly, but I think you get to feel how unique that period of time is and how horrendous that time is.